I think one of the toughest realities of life has to be watching someone we love walk away from the Lord and his will for our, uh, for our lives. I can think of uh, many people in my own life who I have sadly seen stray from the Lord and choose to do life on their own terms. I, I think of so many of the friends I grew up with, uh, even as kids, people that I grew up with going to church and youth group together, serving on mission trips and going on retreats, and, and yet today I know uh, a number of those close friends who are no longer uh, living for Christ, no longer walking with the Lord. I can think of uh, young people that I ministered to as a youth pastor when I was uh, in youth ministry for 10 years, and I think of so many people who, as they graduated from high school and went on to college, and in their adult years, they chose to walk away from the Lord and are no longer active in church, no longer have anything to do with uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ. I think of even, sadly, in my 10 years here at Lakes Free, people who have been a part of our church fellowship, who uh, have sadly chosen to, to leave the church, to not just leave the church, but to, to walk away from their faith. Uh, some of them have left their families and their marriages and chosen to do life on their own terms. And in so many of these examples, I, I recall the efforts that I made to reach out to these individuals, to encourage them to, to turn from their sins, to, to repent and to come back to Christ and, and to experience the joy of walking in a, in a faithful, God-honoring relationship with him. And yet, sadly, uh, we all, I believe, know people just like that who have turned their backs on Christ. Uh, some of you in this room, I know, have struggled with maybe a spouse who has walked away from the Lord or, or adult children who have walked away from the Lord. And, and that's a very difficult place to be. And uh, it's especially difficult when you feel like you've made repeated efforts to, to reach out to that person, to draw them back to faithfulness in Christ. And, and the question that it brings to my mind this morning is, what do we do? What do we do in situations like this? What do we do when it seems like all of our best efforts have failed in reaching out to the people we care about? Our efforts have failed and all hope seems to be lost. Well, friends, this was the situation the prophet Micah found himself in at the end of his ministry. Micah had served the Lord faithfully in the southern kingdom of Judah his entire life, calling the people of Judah back to repentance, to turn from their sins, to come back to a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And apart from a, a small number of successes in his ministry, Micah got to the end of his life, to the end of his ministry, and he looked out upon the people of Israel. He looked at the kingdom of Judah, and he saw sadly People who had strayed from the Lord, who had rebelled against God's word, who had rejected Micah's pleas to turn back to God and to walk faithfully in his ways. And friends, can you imagine Micah's disappointment? After a lifetime of investing himself in this ministry, to recognize that the people of Israel had fully turned their backs on God. How did Micah deal with this dilemma? How did he deal with this disappointment and sadness? Well, for Micah, the answer to his disappointment was found in reflecting on the fundamental reality 
of the nature and character of our great and faithful God. Micah looked back to our God as his source of hope. In verse 18 of our passage this morning, we're going to find Micah ask the question, Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? In fact, this is where the the title of our sermon series has come from, Who is Like Our God? That's what Micah's name literally means, Who is Like Our God? And so today Micah asked this question, and the answer to this question for Micah was easy. There was no one like the God of Israel. There was no God like our God. There was no one and nothing else that could compare to him. And you know something, friends? It was this perspective that gave Micah hope, even in the midst of his disappointments. See, this morning, I I want us all to realize that we are all going to face disappointments and hurts in life. And oftentimes they come as the result of people that we love choosing to rebel against the Lord. And what do we do when these disappointments come into our lives? Well, friends, I want us to understand this morning that every single one of us has a choice. We have a choice. You can choose to focus on your circumstance, or you can focus on your stance. Your circumstance or your stance. You see, you can focus on your circumstance, the trials, the hurt, the disappointment, or you can focus on your stance, the firm foundation that is our great and faithful God. Like that classic hymn declares, on Christ the solid rock I stand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. So friends, what will you choose? Your circumstance or your stance? See, Micah chose to focus on his stance, on his unwavering trust in the sovereign goodness and faithfulness of God. And it was in standing on these truths that Micah found a basis for hope, even in the midst of his disappointment and sorrow. This morning, we're going to look at Micah's stance. We're going to look at Micah's hope in the greatness and faithfulness of God. We're going to look at this question, who is a God like you? And we're going to see how Micah answers that question in the final chapter of our series here in the book of Micah. Today we're going to be in Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 20. I want to read this passage for us this morning. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screens, but when we come back after reading through the passage, I want to highlight for us today three characteristics of God upon which Micah made his stance. Even at the end of his ministry, in spite of his disappointment, in spite of his recognition that Israel was hopelessly lost at this point. Micah took a stance on the nature and character of his great and faithful God. Let's read our passage this morning. How sad for me, Micah starts out. How sad for me. For I am like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape cluster to eat, no early fig which I crave. Faithful people have vanished from the land, 
There is no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. Do not rely on a friend. Don't trust in a close companion. Seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother. And a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are of his own household. But I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will stand up. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I must endure the Lord's rage until he champions my cause and establishes justice for me. He will bring me into the light. I will see his salvation. Then my enemy will see, and she will be covered with shame. The one who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look at her in triumph. At that time, she will be trampled like mud in the streets. A day will come for rebuilding your walls. On that day, your boundary will be extended. On that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates River, and from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Then the earth will become a wasteland because of its inhabitants and as a result of their actions. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that is your possession. They live alone in a woodland surrounded by pastures. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times. I will perform miracles for them as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick the dust as a snake. They will come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They will tremble in the presence of the Lord our God. They will stand in awe of you. Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. Here in Micah chapter 7, we see Micah take his stance on the promises of who our great and faithful God is. Micah asked in verse 18, who is like our God? Who is like our God? And in our passage this morning, we see Micah answer that question in three ways. Who is like our God? Number one, a God who is awesome in judgment. 
who is like our God, awesome in judgment. Micah opens our passage this morning in verse 1 with this very personal word of lament. And a lament is simply a, a sorrowful prayer of disappointment. After a lifetime in ministry, Micah is grieved over what he finds in the nation of Israel. He, he highlights it for us here in these first seven verses. Injustice, abuse, greed, exploitation, all of these things that we've seen over the past seven weeks in our series. God's people had broken his covenant. They were plagued by injustice. They were, were plagued by idolatry. They were plagued by the insubordination of their leaders. And Micah here once again laments the state of Israel, the state of Judah that he sees all around him. Describing himself as a farmer going out to the harvest, Micah is pained to discover that the fruit of his labor has disappeared. As he mourns in verse 2, faithful people have vanished from the land. They're all gone. In verse 4, he says that the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. Can you imagine that, friends? The best of them is like a briar. I have a briar plant at home in my front yard, and I have this love-hate relationship with this plant because it produces these beautiful flowers every spring. But then it grows like a weed the rest of the year, and I have to trim that thing back about three or four times every summer. And every time I do, the thorns on this beautiful briar plant, they, they tear into my flesh, they rip my shirts, they, they leave me covered with scratches. And Micah says this is what the best of Judah was as he looked out at the end of his ministry. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright a hedge of thorns. What a sorry picture this must have been for God's prophet to see after a lifetime of ministry. Micah goes on in verse 4, speaking to Israel. He says, The day of your watchmen, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. What's Micah talking about here? Well, this was a reference, friends, to the prophets that God had sent to warn Israel. The prophets God had sent were the watchmen. And the watchmen had been warning Israel. The watchmen had been calling Israel to repent and turn back to God. And now Micah says, the day of your watchmen has come. The day of your panic is here because they have rebelled against the warnings of God's watchmen. And the day of judgment was coming to Israel. And in fact, as Micah reports here in verses 1 through 7, the day of judgment had already begun. How had God's judgment already begun? Well, friends, it could be seen in the breakdown of the social order that Micah describes here. And notice what Micah says, that the evil and injustice of Israel wasn't just confined to the rich and powerful but it had actually filtered down into the very fabric of Israelite culture, even into the family life and the family structure of Israel. Look what Micah says in verses 5 and 6. He says, don't rely on a friend. Don't trust in a close companion. Remember, the, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn bush, he says. He says, seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Don't even trust your own wife at this point. 
Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother. A daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Friends, God's judgment had already begun. You see, we often think of God's judgment in terms of these cataclysmic acts of nature or military conquests. But please understand this this morning, friends. Oftentimes, God's judgment is most clearly seen when he simply delivers his people over to their sins. You see, when an individual or a nation continues in rebellion against God, eventually God will just let them have their way. Eventually, God's just going to say, fine, you want to rebel against me? You want to turn your back on me? Then I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your rebellion. And God will deliver a people over to judgment, to the consequences of their sin. And this is what Micah observed happening with God's people. It was a total breakdown of the social order. They had abandoned God. They had turned to idols. They had rejected his will. They had pursued evil and selfish gain. They had rebelled against authority. The family was disintegrating all around them. It was a time of chaos and social crisis. And all of it, friends, was a sign that God's judgment had come. The Apostle Paul describes this reality for us in chapter 1 of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul describes what happens to a nation or a people when they repeatedly turn their back on God. Starting down at the bottom of the slide in verse 21, Paul says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, reptiles. That's idolatry. So what happened? Verse 24, therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. He goes on in verse 26, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Although they know God's true just, just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Friends, does that not sound 
exactly what we see going on in our own culture today. Not only committing all of this rebellion against God, but actually applauding those who do. This is what happens, Paul says, when God delivers a culture over to their sins. And this is what was taking place in the days of the prophet Micah. God had delivered them over to their sins. They were experiencing the judgment of their rebellion against God. It had infiltrated every area of society, even their family life. And I have to wonder, friends, are we not experiencing God's judgment in this very same way today? Has God delivered our nation over to our sinful rebellion? Is the social discord and the immorality and the injustice that we see so rampant in our culture today, is all of that evidence that God has given us over? Friends, our God is awesome in judgment, and he will not tolerate open rebellion for long. And when we turn our back on him, we shouldn't be surprised when he simply gives us over to the consequences of our sin. Now all of that's the bad news. And it looks pretty bleak. But there's also good news this morning. There's hope. Even in the midst of God's judgment, there's hope for a better future. There's hope for you personally. And there's even hope for our nation. And where can that hope be found? Micah tells us in verse 7, he says, But I will look to the Lord. In spite of all of this going on around me, Micah says, I will look to the Lord. And why does Micah look to the Lord? Because as we're going to see, point number two this morning, Micah knew that who is like our God? Our God is abounding in faithfulness. No matter the degradation of our culture, no matter how far I've rebelled personally, I have a God who's abounding in faithfulness. Remember, Micah was going to take his stance on the truths he knew about our great and faithful God. And we see God's abounding in faithfulness in two primary ways in our passage this morning. Verses 8 through 17. Number one, we see God's abounding faithfulness in the reality that God will deliver his people. God is a deliverer. In verses 8 through 13, Micah reveals that yes, God is going to judge Israel for their sins. God's judgment was coming. He he wasn't changing his mind on that. Judgment was coming. They were going to be taken away to Babylon, into exile. They were going to be judged for their sins. But God also tells the people of Israel here that he would prove faithful in his love for his people. Remember, friends, God's goal his goal throughout this entire study in Micah and his goal for Micah's ministry as his prophet was to move his people from a place of rebellion to restoration. That's what God desired. He wanted to bring them from rebellion to restoration. Punishment wasn't God's goal. Discipline was God's goal. Friends, do you realize there's a difference this morning between punishment and discipline? Right? Punishment is about consequences. Discipline is about correction. 
I remember when I was a young child, my dad would often travel and he'd be gone for a week at a time. And man, my brother and I, we would give my mom fits when my dad was gone. I mean, we would wrestle and fight. And I mean, we were just, you know, we fought like cats and dogs. We were four years apart. Can you imagine, you know, here's a, here's a mom, dad's on the road traveling all the time. Your 13-year-old son's beating up your nine-year-old son. They're fighting back and forth, right? And, and my mom, she would warn us. She said, you guys, when your dad gets home, you're going to get it. And I knew that when my mom said that, I was in big trouble. I knew that judgment was coming. And sure enough, at the end of the week when my dad would come home, my dad would take me to my room and we'd sit down on the edge of my bed and my dad would say, Jason, I've got to punish you this morning. I've got to punish you because you had rebelled against your mom and the rules that we've set. But then my dad would explain that his punishment wasn't the end. That my dad's ultimate goal for me was to restore me, to, to discipline me for the sake of correction. My dad would explain, Jason, I want you to grow up to be a man of integrity. I want you to grow up to be a man who's faithful, who honors his parents, who honors God. And so, Jason, when I punish you this morning, it's for the goal of correction and restoration. And he would always assure me, Jason, you're my son, and I love you, and I'm proud of you. But this discipline is ultimately for your good. See, in the same way, God promised his people that he was going to discipline them. Punishment was coming, but he would ultimately lovingly restore them. And friends, It wasn't just a promise. God fulfilled it. He was faithful. He would restore Israel. In 586 BC, the Israelites were exiled to Babylon. And they would spend 50 years in exile in Babylon. But that was not the end for them. As Micah tells us here in verses 8 through 17, God would restore them. He would rebuild their walls. And God kept that promise. He was faithful. Fifty years went by in exile. And in 536 B.C., 50 years after they left Jerusalem, God raised up a leader of the Persian Empire named Cyrus. Cyrus came and he conquered the Babylonian Empire. And he freed the Israelites and he restored them back to Jerusalem. By the way, this is an ancient selfie of Cyrus. But friends, what's so incredible about that whole event is that God had prophesied it 150 years earlier, even mentioning Cyrus by name before he was even born. In Isaiah chapter 45, God, 150 years before he freed his people, called out Cyrus by name. Look at Isaiah 45 verse 1. The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and disarm kings to open doors before him. Even city gates will not be shut. God had prophesied that this ruler, Cyrus, would come and free his people. Go to the next slide, please. He does this, he says, go back, I'm sorry. He does this, he says, for the sake of Jacob and for his people, Israel. God was going to raise up a guy named Cyrus 
to free the Jews. This was before they had even gone into exile. This was before there was a Persian Empire. This was before Cyrus even had parents to bring him into this world. And God prophesied this and called him out by name. What's really fascinating, friends, the Roman historian Josephus who lived during the time of Jesus, he actually reports that it was these biblical prophecies that Cyrus was exposed to when he was the emperor that led him to free the Jews. He saw God prophesy him by name. How did he see that? Do you remember Daniel, the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter 10 verse 1 tells us that Daniel served as the chief of the Magi in the courts of Cyrus for three years. So Daniel, God's prophet, probably took the Isaiah scroll to Cyrus and said, Cyrus, God prophesied you 150 years ago that you would be the one to free his people. Friends, that's incredible. The way God orchestrates history. The way he rules and leads nations. It was passages like this, friends, that convinced me of the absolute and total sovereignty of God over all of history. There's nothing that happens by chance. There's nothing that happens by accident. Our God is in control of it all. He's a faithful God. And he's proven his faithfulness in so many incredible ways, orchestrating history, sovereignly guiding rulers and nations, miraculously restoring the people of Israel. Friends, don't you think that you too can trust him for your deliverance? Where do you need deliverance today? Maybe you've been living in rebellion against God. Maybe you're in the midst of a a relationship that's strained or broken. And you're crying out for help. Maybe you're living with the reality of a loved one who's strayed from the Lord. Where do you need God's deliverance? 1 Peter 5, 6-7 tells us, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Friends, our God is abundantly faithful. He's a God of deliverance. And if you'll cast your cares upon him, you can trust him that he will provide deliverance for you too. The second promise we see here is in God's abundant faithfulness, not only will he deliver his people, but in verses 14 through 17, Micah tells us that God will shepherd his people. God is a good shepherd. He's a faithful shepherd. Verses 14 through 17, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock that is in your possession. They live alone in a woodland. That's a good thing, by the way. No, no creatures, no, no, uh, no other animals to scare them or concern them. Surrounded by pastures, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in ancient times, the beautiful pasture lands of, Egypt, of Israel. God would shepherd his people. King David, the great shepherd king of Israel, he knew this truth about our faithful God. He saw the Lord as our shepherd. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 2, David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. David says, He lets me lie down. 
Friends, these words become so familiar to many of us that we often fail to recognize just how powerful this simple statement really is. He lets me lie down. A a, a man by the name of Philip Keller, he's a rancher and a shepherd up in British Columbia, Canada. A few years ago, he wrote a great book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he broke down Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, from the perspective of a real-life shepherd. And he talks about all of the ways that David's passage reflects the truths about what shepherding is all about and what a truly good shepherd has to do to manage his flock well. One of the interesting passages in this book is where this, this author, Philip Keller, describes what it, what it requires to get a sheep to lie down. Friends, that's no small task to get a sheep to lie down. In order for a sheep to lie down, the sheep needs to be free of four things. It needs to be free from fear. It can't have any worries or concerns about, about any other you know, predators out there looking to attack it. It needs to be free from tension In other words, if there's anything in the flock causing dissension amongst the sheep, those sheep aren't going to lie down. It also needs to be free of aggravation. If the flies are constantly buzzing around it or the mosquitoes are driving it crazy, the sheep's not going to lay down. And then fourthly, the sheep needs to be free of hunger. It needs to be well fed and cared for. And unless the sheep experiences all four of these things, it's not going to lie down. And so when God tells us that he lets us lie down, he is the good shepherd, he lets me lie down, what that's telling us here, friends, is that God is a good and faithful shepherd who who frees us from our fears and he tempers our tensions. He alleviates all of our aggravations and he helps us in our hungers, providing for all of our needs because he's a faithful God. He's abounding in faithfulness. This past week, I was talking with our church staff, and we were talking about all the many ways that we've seen God's faithfulness here at our church. Dave Peck, our worship tech director, he made an interesting observation. He was sharing about this past fall when his brother Michael tragically passed away. And David was just reflecting on the reality of how the day that Michael passed away, how many people showed up at his parents' house to provide their love and care. How they just felt the overwhelming presence of God there with them. How how God was giving his family this incredible peace even in the midst of the most heartbreaking trial you could ever experience, losing a son, losing a brother. And David said, I don't know how people make it through tragedies like that without God. Friends, that's what it means when the scriptures tell us the Lord is our shepherd. He lets me lie down. No matter what the circumstances I might face, he lets me lie down because he's a faithful God. Micah says, who is like our God? Thirdly, Micah points out in our passage, our God is amazing in grace. He's amazing in grace. Let me read this last section for us, verses 18 through 20. And just let these truths be absorbed deep into your soul this morning. Who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion 
for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. Friends, please notice here in this passage, this forgiveness that we see here, this compassion, this faithful love, it's all God. It's all God. There's nothing that Israel or Judah did to warrant this love or merit this love or earn this love. It's just all about God. It's his faithful love because that's who God is. And this is what amazing grace is, friends. See, grace is nothing more than the undeserved, unmerited, unearned compassion of God that is rooted in his faithful love. And the grace that Micah knew and the grace that he speaks about here in our passage, this is simply a foreshadowing of the ultimate grace that God would bestow on his people in sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. You remember a couple weeks ago we looked at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where Micah prophesied, Micah declared that God would send Israel a ruler, a savior whose origins were from old, from antiquity, from ancient times. In other words, this savior, this ruler would be divine. God himself would come and save his people. And here in verse 18 of our passage this morning, Micah describes the ministry of this promised savior. He would come forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion. Friends, all of the Israelites who heard those words would have immediately seen an allusion to the Passover lamb of Egypt. He forgives our iniquities and passes over our rebellion. Friends, do you remember the story of the exodus from Egypt? God sent plague after plague upon the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, forcing them to to let his people go, and they continued to resist and rebel against God. And finally, in the last and final plague, God said, I am going to destroy all the firstborn sons of Egypt. And he told the Israelites, I want you to go and kill a, a spotless lamb, the Passover lamb. I want you to kill this lamb, sacrifice it to me, take its blood, smear its blood over the doorframe of your home, and the night the angel of the Lord comes to put his judgment against the people of Egypt, I will pass over your homes. That's the Passover lamb. And in the same way, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to be the perfect Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins, so that God might forgive our iniquity and pass over our rebellion. And believe it or not, friends, it gets even better here in our passage. Micah says God doesn't just forgive our sins and pass over our rebellion, but in verse 19, we're told that he actually vanquishes them, casting them into the depths of the sea. Friends, do you realize how deep the sea is? The, the deepest spot in the ocean is called the Mariana Trench. It's found right in between Japan and Indonesia, right off the coast of Guam. The Mariana Trench is 35,839 feet deep, over seven miles deep. Now, friends, just to give you some context here, the tallest point on earth is Mount Everest, 
29,029 feet tall. Do you realize that you could put Mount Everest into the Mariana Trench and it would still be covered over a mile deep in water? Friends, when God tells us that he is going to vanquish our sins and cast them into the depths of the sea, you better know he means business. He doesn't just forgive our sins. They're forgotten. They're gone. They're banished forever. Why? Because he's a God of amazing grace. Have you experienced that amazing grace? You know, you can this morning. When you put your trust in God's son, Jesus Christ, and ask him to forgive you of your sins, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. When you trust in him as your Savior and Lord, he will forgive your sins. He'll cast them into the depths of the sea. He'll bring you into a right relationship with your creator, God. And friends, I'll tell you something. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher or a terrorist. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a dictator. It doesn't matter if you're a housewife or a hoodlum. It doesn't matter who you are when you turn to the Lord in faith and repent of your sins. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will cast your sins in the depths of the sea because that's who he is. He's amazing in grace. Who is like our God? Who is like our God? Friends, there's no one like our God. There's no one who can whip up the winds and the storms. There's no one like our God who alone is awesome in judgment. There's no one like our God who's abounding in faithfulness. There's no one like our God who is so amazing in grace. Why would we ever pursue any other? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these powerful truths that we've seen here through your prophet Micah. And Lord, today, what a, what a way to close out this series. Taking our stance upon these powerful truths about the nature and character of God. Awesome in judgment, abounding in faithfulness, amazing in grace. God, I pray that we too, like Micah, would take our stance upon these truths. Even in those times in life when we experience disappointments and hurt and heartache, may we remember that we stand on the solid rock of a great and faithful God. And may those truths encourage us. May they lift our spirits. May they give us hope. Lord, you are amazing, amazing in grace. And more than anything this morning, Lord, I pray that everybody here today has had a supernatural encounter with your grace. I pray, Lord Jesus, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't yet turned to you in repentance, confessing their sins, calling out to you, declaring you to be their only hope, our Savior and Lord, God, may they do so today. May they experience the reality of having all of their sins vanquished and cast into the depths of the sea, gone forever, because you are amazing grace. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We give you all the honor and glory and praise. In your great name, amen.